The European Union has not treated us well. Stupid European elites jumping off the cliffs once again. Yes, you are the guilty people and you refuse to accept it. This is EU Scream, the progressive politics podcast from Brussels. I'm James, a journalist who's crisscrossed Europe for 15 years now, covering politics and the economy. I'm Tom. I've been a lobbyist and spin doctor in Brussels for many years, and I've spent the last decade fighting climate change. In this episode, we meet Barry Eichengreen, the eminent economic historian who teaches at University of California, Berkeley. Barry was an early skeptic about the prospects of European Monetary Union. He now acknowledges the euro is here to stay, but he makes an urgent plea for Europe to make further reforms to ensure that another financial crisis of the kind that exploded a decade ago doesn't further feed the atmosphere of far-right nationalist populism that recalls some of the most chilling aspects of the Europe of the 1930s. Barry spoke in Brussels, where he gave the academic lecture at the Center for European Policy Studies Ideas Lab and presented his latest book, The Populist Temptation, written with his family suffering at the hands of the Nazis firmly in mind. Barry, in in The Populist Temptation, you cite an Eisenhower-era appointee to the U.S. Supreme Court, Justice Potter, to illustrate how both easy and how difficult it is to define populism, to come to a definition of populism. What was it that Justice Potter said about pornography? He said, we, uh, we know it when we see it. We can't define it, but we, but we know it when we see it. And I do think that populism has an element of that as well, that it involves out of the mainstream politics and politicians, politicians often with charismatic characteristics, another word that is widely used but hard to define. So everybody talks about populism, nobody does anything about it, partly because of the difficulty of defining it precisely and understanding it well. Okay. What is your message to Europe right now about the threat of nationalist populism? And if I may, I'd like to ask that question in light of, I think it was your grandmother, Sarah, who was starved to death in the Wuch ghetto, and your Aunt Karen uh, murdered at Calmino, if I'm not wrong. And of course, your mother, Lucille, survived the Holocaust and has written her memoirs. So I only write books when I'm concerned and confused by events in the real world. So my previous book, Hall of Mirrors, was about the global financial crisis. I'm first and foremost a student of financial history. I thought we had come to understand the financial crisis problem sufficiently well that we would prevent another one from occurring with all the political and economic and social costs that financial crises bring. That happy thought turned out to be wrong, so I felt compelled to sit down and write a book about it, both to structure my own thinking and maybe contribute to a little bit to policymakers' understanding of what, what went wrong and what they should do next time. So similarly, the fact that we see 
resurgent nationalism, xenophobia, anti-Semitism, all alive in Europe today. Certainly resonates with history and it resonates with my personal history as well. That was what got me uh, hot and bothered about Brexit and Trump and the rise uh, uh, of European populism. So I do think it's worth remembering this history and it and it's very much a European history. I'm not sure that so many people in Britain for instance are able to make that link between the dangers of nationalist populism what happened in the 1930s and 1940s and things like Brexit. Do you see ways of helping connect them more with that history through the work you're doing? Making those connections starts with recalling the, uh, the very origins of the U- European community, the European Union, that people like Alan Millward, the, himself an English historian, although he ended his career in Florence, I believe, ex- explained how the European community was a continent-wide construct that would permit nationalism to exist, but in uh, non-threatening, constructive ways. By the spirit of the treaty, I do not mean those aspirations to an ever closer union. The spirit of the treaty was something more immediate, an attempt to create, among a group of rich, contiguous countries, a system of careful market regulation and supervision which encouraged trade expansion while protecting the personal security, income and welfare gains on which post-war electorates in those countries had all insisted. That history, I think, is, is not something that was as alive in the UK as it was on the continent. It took Britain 15 plus years to finally make the transition in, in their first referendum to come into the European community. So in terms of that consciousness, I think they were late to the game and they saw uh, membership in, in the European community more in terms of the pecuniary benefits of the single market than they did in terms of the larger politics. And may I ask about your mother, Lucille? What is her thinking these days when she looks at the state of Europe? Is she thinking, oh my, they're back? Actually, uh, having spoken to her a few days ago about this, I think she is more concerned even about the United States, where she's lived now for almost 70 years, that we see in the rise of right-wing extremism and concerns about racism as well as anti-Semitism, the darker aspects of the United States, which has its own original sin in the form of 19th century slavery that continues to, I think, pollute our politics and society here in Europe. The European Union, the European Commission, is an obvious target for nationalist, populist politicians because it is remote, it is staffed by technocrats, by the elite, it's dominated by foreigners, regardless of what particular country you come from. But I think we do have the same kind of innate suspicion of the U.S. federal government in my country that many people in in Europe now feel toward the European Union and and the Commission. You know, one of the things, Barry, that you do in your book is that you repeatedly call the EU institutions elite, undemocratic, 
run by unaccountable technocrats. But let me challenge you there a little bit. I mean, most senior bureaucrats in national governments are both well-educated and unelected. And in the case of the EU, the leaders in the council are elected. The appointees to the commission are made by elected governments. And the parliament is directly elected. Then, you know, there are a lot of member states, you know, you could think of Bulgaria, where, in fact, large numbers of citizens are reassured by the idea that foreigners are keeping an eye on what's going on in their country. And you call the ECB... I think, the least politically accountable central bank in the world. Aren't you rather playing into the hands of the nationalist populists by describing Brussels this way? Perhaps, but I prefer to think of it as a wake-up call for the European Union and, and, and the ECB and so forth. Take the case of the ECB, where historically the minutes of the Board of Governors have not been published where the ECB president does not testify to national parliaments. Some of these conventions and uh, rules are now beginning to be modified to make the institution more transparent. I think it understands the, the challenge. You mean you've never been to the exciting sessions at the European Parliament where Mario Draghi turns up? Yes, Mr. Draghi. Unemployment is... Uh, re being reduced in the same amount of the people who have to leave the country. Which uh, Let me uh, disagree with you about almost about everything you said. Are we blackmailing Greece? Well, it's a bit rich. Rules were in place and had been applied. So I, I think there is some progress being made. It is true, as you said, that in countries where trust in government is least, trust in the European Union is greatest for the reasons that you describe. And I think more can, can be done. So I have a, what some of my European friends called a half-baked proposal in the book for direct election of, of the President of the Commission. And again, I think in terms of the transparency of that process, there has been slow progress in the last few years and needs to be more. Okay, let's look more deeply at European populism. Do you think it is really more of the identitarian variety here or more attributable to economic frustration? You know, it's interesting that Hungary and Germany, which are two of the hotbeds in many ways of nationalist populism, have been doing pretty well economically. I suppose I would throw into that question, you know, to what extent does some of that tendency towards white supremacism we've seen in the United States also inform what's going on in Europe. You're trying to force me to, to choose between two explanations, and I'm going to resist, because I think everywhere that I've looked at, one sees uh, elements of both economic insecurity, feeding populism, and identity concerns about the dominant group in, in the U.S. Of course, it's older white male voters who feel threatened not only by the specter of a caravan from Central America, but also by feminism. If you look back at Trump's statements during the campaign, people who are confused by changes in society that seem to be threatening their once comfortable, dominant position. On the economic side, even if an economy is doing well, there are still valid concerns about 
distribution, the fact that not everybody is benefiting equally. And economists like John Maynard Keynes wrote a lot about how relative economic status as well as absolute economic status matters for people's perceived well-being. And then there are concerns about uh, security, that even if the economy and even if I as an individual are doing well today, that's no guarantee of tomorrow, and that's no guarantee in particular that my kids are going to be doing well when, when they're off in the labor market on their own. So in, in a lot of countries, I don't know the situation in Hungary per se, but I certainly know the situation in Italy where it's hard for young people, even after they've graduated university, to leave the family home and actually have the resources necessary to set up a household. So I think that security concern is felt even in Germany and Hungary and other places where, Scandinavia, other places where economies have been doing tolerably well. Right. And there is a sense when you speak to people in, you know, elite circles, and it's also to some degree my default position, that so many of the narratives around populism have been weaponized by these charismatic leaders to exaggerate the threat to identity, to exaggerate, you know, the threat of economic insecurity. I get the sense that you think they're playing on very real fears, but are they really? Are they telling tall tales that are completely out of proportion to the challenges that the West faces? I, I, I think they are exaggerating, as you say, in their self-interest, but there is an underlying sense of insecurity that is very real. And it's evident, for example, in studies that show that pro-Brexit sentiment was greatest in parts of the UK where austerity hit the hardest, where uh, the social safety net was frayed to the greatest extent. So I, I do think that sense of insecurity over future economic status and over how society and culture and national identity are changing, those things are real, but clever populists are exaggerating and weaponizing them in their own self-interest. I would agree with that as well. I wanted to also ask, how does the literature stack up when it comes to the role that migration plays in the economy. Would you say that we have a definitive view that migration to countries like Germany, Sweden, the rest of Western Europe is a net good for an economy? Economists are in the business of disagreeing with one another. And uh, like the politicians you were describing before, exaggerating their disagreements. That's one way of making one's research visible. But I do think there is a broad scholarly consensus now grounded in a lot of careful empirical work that the impact of immigration in cases like the United States has been very limited, marginal. The problems uh, these studies always face is that good economic conditions can attract migrants and as well as migrants affecting economic conditions, and that makes it hard to pick out an effect. Uh, so there's been a lot of work looking at quasi-natural experiments, cases like the Mariel boat lift from Cuba into Florida, cases like the repatriation of French Algerians after the Algerian Civil War. And I think they all point in the same direction, that the effects are not as large as alarmist accounts would lead one to expect, and that there are 
effective policies for facilitating, fostering assimilation, uh, limiting the kind of social problems you get from clusters of unemployed immigrants and negative spillovers to natives. Perhaps not a huge economic boost, perhaps not really damage, economic damage either. A lot, again, depends on the country. It depends on the skill composition of the immigrant groups. But a simple way to think about it is that people in Europe are relatively skilled on average. Many of the migrants who come from Africa, for example, or the Middle East are less skilled, so they're not competing directly with natives in the labor market, but they're providing them with services that would be prohibitively expensive otherwise. And if you look at the net contribution of immigrants to the FISC to the government budget, it tends to be positive. There's a lot of concern in the U.S., for example, about immigrants taking social services and not paying taxes. That is, is contrary to the facts. They do pay taxes by and large, and, and, and they contribute more than they, they take. You know, I live in a country of immigration where there is a long history, number one, of resenting immigrants. So in the 19th century, the old immigrants from Scandinavia and England resented the new immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe. European countries are not historically countries of immigration. So the challenge here is is newer. Now, we're increasingly seeing Europe's nationalist populists walk back their pledges to withdraw their countries from the Eurozone and to withdraw from the EU. So they're toning that down. The sense we're getting is that they want to use now, the nationalist populists want to use the EU to further their liberal policies on gender, on immigration, on rule of law. Would you say that that's kind of part of an expected nationalist populist playbook in Europe? Well, I think what you're describing as the nationalist populists in Europe don't entirely have a playbook. They're figuring it out as they go, just like the rest of us are. So they learned from Brexit that leaving the European Union is not really an attractive option. They they have been able to push back against the, the norms of the European Union with surprising success. And I think the EU has let them do that, by and large, up until now. Is that going to change now as the EU begins to react against the more extreme things that Orban has done in Hungary, for example, and uh, some of the more extreme statements of of Salvini in Italy about immigrants? We'll see. So at this point, uh, given that exiting the EU is not an option, I think it's now it makes sense, it's predictable that the nationalists In Europe, we'll see how far they can push uh, the EU in the direction they desire, and then what happens if and when there is a clash and the uh, EU mainstream pushes back. Who is to say? Well, I mean, there's also this sense that come November, they're actually going to be sitting in greater numbers inside the Commission, the nationalist populists, greater numbers within the Parliament, of course, And you will have possibly Salvini in the European Council if he becomes prime minister. So they would be in an even greater position to steer the boat. 
That's right, but uh, at the same time, there is a system of checks and balances in the European Union. There's an acquis that presumably will not be changed. There is a European Court of Justice to still rule on, on what kind of uh, national policies conform to EU law and which ones don't. That they will be sitting in the Parliament or, or the Commission doesn't give them laissez-faire. You write that Europe is in somewhat better a position than the U.S., at least in theory, to beat back the populist challenge. You know, you partly attribute that to the acceptance here, the broader acceptance of a social market economy and to some of the electoral systems. So do you think that the populist alternative will eventually be marginalized in Europe or not? I'm not sure you have completely made up your mind on that yet. That's correct. I think it, it, you know, forecasting is hard, especially when it involves multiple different futures here, some more optimistic, some darker. And I, I do not think there are any guarantees. The problem being that mainstream politicians and parties haven't gone very far down the road in terms of being able to articulate coherent, affordable programs that address the concerns of uh, the yellow vests in France or Trump backers in the United States. You advocate for what seems like full repatriation of fiscal policy also as a recipe for diminishing the populist appeal. Could you walk us through that just a little bit and how that relates to the Eurozone? The basic argument of that part of the book is that the EU needs to clearly distinguish between activities and functions and policies where there are large spillovers between member states and those activities need to be coordinated at the level of the European Union or they need to be centralized at the level of the European Union. On the other hand, if there is some kind of policy where the spillover between France and Germany or country A and country B is not that great, that activity can be safely delegated to the member state in question. That's a way of stating the principle of subsidiarity. So this is part of the way the EU is organized anyway. The controversial part of what, I, what I've said is the notion that fiscal policy doesn't have large spillovers across borders. If you think of it purely macroeconomic as opposed to financial effects, a French fiscal expansion will be good for Germany insofar as it sucks in more German exports. It'll be bad for Germany insofar as it raises interest rates euro area wide. With the two effects working in opposite directions, the net macroeconomic spillover across borders is relatively small. And if your argument is uh, we have to worry about the impact on neighboring countries and the euro area as a whole uh, of fiscal policies because of the financial effects, the threats to banking stability here and abroad, that's an argument for strengthening the banking system, which is part of the agenda, which I think can be effectively done as well. So if you break the so-called diabolic loop between budget problems and banking problems, at that point I think it becomes safe to return control of fiscal policies to the member states. And if a member state runs an irresponsible fiscal policy, runs into a debt sustainability problem, 
has to restructure its debts. What happens in that country stays in that country, and it won't be tempted to be even more reckless because it's hoping for a bailout from the union or the ECB, and its neighbors won't worry about the repercussions for them. If you take away, if you start walking back from unified sort of fiscal arrangements, aren't you walking away from the euro itself? I don't think so. I think the euro is a monetary union that needs to be supplemented by a banking union to provide that banking strength that I was talking about a moment ago. I'm not as convinced about the need for a fiscal union. I think the many of these uh, the necessary functions of fiscal policy can be provided at the national level, maybe with a modest common fiscal fund, but in, to my mind, without the need for a full-blown one. To what degree was the nationality, do you think, of members of the representatives of the lenders involved in the Eurozone bailouts, perhaps an influence on policy? Not only people's own national histories, but also national stereotype played uh, an important role in the crisis. So the way Greece's problems were perceived in, in, in Northern Europe, that somehow Greeks have always been irresponsible, made resolving the crisis much more difficult than, than it needed to be. In some ways perpetuated by another stereotype, which is German orderliness. That really was a very sort of negative dynamic. I think it was a, a, a negative dynamic. My uh, Berkeley neighbor, Michael Lewis, wrote a book about the, uh, the crisis where he talked at length about uh, the Icelandic fishermen, the adventurous cod fishermen turned into bankers, about uh, uh, certain aspects of, uh, of the German preoccupation with, with orderliness. So, yes. The book starts with the first to go belly up, Iceland. A breed apart, says Lewis. They borrowed money to go acquire things, Indian power plants and Danish newspapers and British soccer teams. And they did it willy-nilly, and they told themselves a story that Icelandic history and culture and DNA leaves us very well-suited to being investment bankers. You know, in the case of Greece, uh, it, it's very true that the country has a, has a rich and difficult history of not managing its debt well and... and defaulting on its external obligations repeatedly over the course of two centuries, which tells us nothing about what the Greek government will do in the future or how committed it was to adjustment and reform after 2010. So these stereotypes are powerful, but I, I, you know, I don't think they necessarily tell us much about how 21st century governments and, and societies will respond. If you had to pick... Among who of the following, in your view, bears most personal responsibility for the sort of mishandling of the Greek crisis and the suffering of the Greeks during the height of the crisis? Would it be Wolfgang Schauble of the Eurogroup? Would it be José Manuel Barroso and Jean-Claude Juncker of the European Commission? Would it be Dominique Strauss-Kahn and Christine Lagarde of the International Monetary Fund? Or, you know, would it be Mario Draghi of the European Central Bank? Or perhaps I should throw a wild card in there and say, you know, would it be Yanis Varoufakis and his kind of brinksmanship that he showed 
in the Eurogroup that made the situation so much worse. I can tell you on that list who I think bears least responsibility. I would cross Mario Draghi off the list. I think there was a big change in ECB policy in a more constructive direction. The ECB finally became a, a lender of last resort with transition from cliché to Draghi, do whatever it takes. I find it hard to rank the other figures that you mentioned relative to one another. I think I find most extraordinary the fact that the IMF laid down and accepted the European institutions' unwillingness to contemplate debt restructuring in Greece in 2010. That was a, a point, I think, where had Strauss-Kahn not been running for the French presidency, the fund might have behaved differently and that could have changed the course of history. Where the fund would have been much tougher with Europe and said, look, cut the Greeks some slack. You put it more clearly than I did. Let's circle that back to where we are now with nationalist populism. There is a link. I, I do think there is a link in making the connection between austerity, self-imposed, and the Brexit vote in the UK. But I, I do think that there is a link between high unemployment and social distress on the one hand and voting for extremist parties by and large on the right, because that then uh, is, is a way to effectively shift some of the blame for what people are experiencing uh, toward foreigners. It's much too easy uh, to look at the incidence of unemployment in Germany in the 1930s and draw a link with the rise of voting for National Socialism. But there is something of a link there. That's a, a subject that has been studied empirically over and over again. But I think where the literature is at the moment is that, yes, there is a link there. So we do need to, we should be worried about the disruptive political implications of adjustment policies that result in high unemployment and uh, suffering by people in societies where there is not an adequate safety net. That's EU Scream for this week. You can check our website at euscream.com for links to topics discussed in the show and for more episodes. Please rate us on iTunes, tweet about us at EU Screams, and like us on Facebook. EU Scream is edited and mixed by me, James Cantor. Tom Brooks and I produce the show. Laura Natali plays our piano. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.